Hello and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. And today we have our second episode in a special edition of Invisible Hate, where we're going to share an episode of the Immigrantly podcast, which Sadia hosts and produces. Really excited to bring that to you. Before we get to that second episode, Sadia, I think, you know, we're at the end of the summer. How was your summer? Did you do anything fun this summer? Unfortunately, no, Asad, because my kids are off to college, as I mentioned in the last week's episode. <laughs> last week, yeah. My so husband sad. was in a motorcycle accident. Oh, yeah, I was of supposed to go on a vacation, which did not happen. So my summer has been interesting, to say the least. Yeah, that's a lot going on for for someone's summer. How does it make you all feel? I don't know. I am still trying to process my feelings. But here's what I can tell you. Since my kids are leaving very soon for college, I'm trying to reconnect with my 25-year-old self, like right before I had kids, to see how I felt without kids. What was I thinking? Now, obviously, I was much younger then. But still, I just feel like I want to reconnect with that side of who I am and experience it in my 40s. I want to know who, what Sadia was like in her 20s. Were you were living in what, Denver, Boston? I was living in Boston. I was in Boston and then we moved to Denver. Were you a party girl? I wasn't, unfortunately, <laughs> not even then. <laughs> but here's the thing I said, I have changed a lot. I have evolved. So who knows? I may start doing that in my 40s. Why not? Uh, yeah, for sure. So do you compare yourself to your daughters who are, you know, now in their, tw- or I guess your your eldest is in her early 20s, I'm guessing. Do you compare your life then to her life now? I, I'd be really interested to know how you feel about that. I do sometimes. But look, she has a lot more opportunities. She's doing a lot more fun stuff than I was doing when I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't have fun. So maybe you'll be a party girl now, Sadia. You're going to have that fun now. (laughs) Exactly. I do think that my early 20s were a lot of fun and I am extremely close to my family. So I remember spending time with them, spending time with my friends. It was a good time. It wasn't the same as, you know, what my daughter is going through. But even then, when I look back, I have some fond memories. You know, Sadia, I'm at the beginning of this journey, obviously, you know, with Isha being, you know, five, almost six months old. And you're at the end of this journey. Not not that parenthood ends, but you know what I mean? They're off to school. And I just can't even imagine what the next, you know, 18 years will bring and everything, all the, the stories and adventures that will go on and it's crazy. I feel like this is a, a new phase of life that you're entering into. And I think that's great for you. And I think you're you're going to absolutely love it and kick ass at it and still be an amazing mom and podcaster. Oh, thank you, Asad. And I will definitely create a lot more content. But here's what I will tell you, Asad. Just enjoy every single minute and moment of this time because time totally. flies. And What I do regret is that I was a young mom and I was impatient. I didn't enjoy the first few years Mm. because I just felt like my kid's presence was limiting me in some ways. Oh, interesting. And when I look back, I regret not enjoying it as much. So my advice would be just enjoy every single minute of it so that you don't have any regrets at the end of 18 years. Totally. So that's great advice, and I definitely will be 
taking that to heart. Absolutely. So, Asad, do you want to tell us what we'll be discussing in this episode? For today's episode, I first want to remind everybody that this is the second and final part of a special edition of Invisible Hate in which we share two episodes from our sister podcast, Immigrantly, which is hosted and produced by Sadia. The episodes focus on a phenomenon known as missing white girl syndrome. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, you might want to stop what you're doing, pause this episode, and listen to that one first. And for those of you that were here last week, you'll remember that part one covered a specific missing child case, the disappearance of four-year-old Sofia Juarez, and the resurgence of her story in the media in 2021. This episode tackles missing white girl syndrome and some of the phenomenon's more profound and more complex aspects. We will return with our regular programming next week with another serious hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, a podcast that celebrates the extraordinariness of the immigrant experience in the U.S. and beyond. I am Sadia Khan. For today's episode, I first want to remind you that this is actually the second and final part of a series we are doing on a phenomenon known as Missing White Girl Syndrome. That means that if you haven't listened to last week's episode, you might want to stop what you're doing, pause this episode and listen to part one. Seriously, guys, go. I promise it's worth the extra time. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that we've been collaborating with a Latino-based non-profit media company called Project Pulso. Together, we hope to shed light on Latino kids who've gone missing here in the U.S. In part one, we covered a specific missing child case, that is the disappearance of four-year-old Sofia Juarez and the resurgence of her story in the media in 2021. So, what is our discussion for today, you may ask? Well, I used the term missing white girl syndrome just now, which by the way is interchangeable with missing white woman syndrome. They are terms we defined a bit in part one. As a reminder, it's used to describe the disproportionate ways that the media reports on kidnapping. By far, the news prioritizes coverage of young white women more than any other group. When it comes to the thousands and thousands of non-white people going missing every year, radio silence. In short, white women and girls are overrepresented in media coverage of missing persons and non-white people in general are underrepresented. But our goal for this episode is to go beyond simply defining missing white girl syndrome, right? What do we do with this knowledge? For this episode, we want to tackle some of the deeper, more complex aspects of this phenomenon. When and why was missing white girl syndrome coined as an issue? How has it affected the Latino community specifically? And perhaps the most important question... What should be done to prioritize the well-being of all 
children in the news. How do we, in a way, cure this syndrome? This is what we hope to explore today through various sources and opinions. Throughout this episode, you'll also hear from Liz Alarcon, the founder and executive director of Pulso. She'll speak on how she believes we can change media biases for the betterment of all. It's 2004 at a journalism conference called Unity when the late journalist Gwen Ifill first coins the term missing white woman syndrome. Take a listen. Things that need immediate attention. Um, I, I think at the time when 94 in Rwanda, we were looking at, uh, you know, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding and, and Wayne Bobbitt. You know, everybody knows what happened to I, Bobbitt. I, you know, I, I, mean, I, call kinda... it, I call it the missing white woman syndrome. <laughs> If there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. <laughs> She's describing the clear racial bias in media. You heard one woman recall that 10 years earlier, in 1994, the media wasn't paying nearly as much attention to the horrors of the Rwandan genocide as they should have. And this is when Eiffel pops in with her comment which will continue to resurface in the media for years to come. What is Eiffel saying here? Well, when it comes to journalism, the story of two white ice skaters, Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, was far more important than the massacre of around 800,000 Rwandans. Now, technically, neither Harding nor Kerrigan were missing, but the point is clear, guys. Eiffel sarcastically chuckles when she calls out missing white woman syndrome. But the situation is far from funny. The term resurfaces again and again in reference to missing persons cases over the years. Now, first, it's important to know that in general, non-white people go missing at rates disproportionately high for their populations. This disparity, by the way, is highest among African-Americans. According to one source that we found, African-Americans make about 13 to 14 percent of the U.S. population. At the same time, they make up about 34 percent of reported missing persons cases any given year. Let that information sink in. Sit with that information. By comparison, white people are about 75% of the population and make up about 59% of missing persons. Yeah, I get it. 59% is technically higher than 34%, but what's important is the proportion. Black Americans are going missing at a rate far higher than their percentage of the American population. And yet, mainstream media coverage doesn't often highlight this. Some sources estimate that white people account for as much as 70% of missing persons cases in the media. 70% listeners? Imagine! 70%! That's just insane to me. Even now, when you look up famous kidnapping cases or watch those chilling documentaries, you see the same faces. J.C. Dugard, Elizabeth Smart, Amber Hegeman, Gabby Petito, all white. And many are 
household names. 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart ripped from her bedroom in the middle. Said that drew national attention. The murder of Gabby Petito by her boyfriend. later after a secret rescue mission to Mexico, Sabrina Allen is back in the United States. It is a miracle. Elizabeth Smart has been found alive. At long last, little J.C. Lee Dugard has come home. But how many people can recall a non-white person's disappearance so quickly? Are those cases household names? Can you recall a non-white person who went missing? Can you recall their name? Did you recently read a newspaper article or saw a documentary around that? As I've said before, it's always a good thing when any child's disappearance gets coverage. It's even better when they are found alive. But we have to recognize the disparities here. It feels like media values white people more. Here's Liz from Pulso. I think that we're hypervigilant when we see a small white girl out in the world and perhaps are more protective of white children, white girls, than we are of black girls, brown girls, Asian girls, Latina girls, because we are accustomed to thinking of a small white child as more precious, as more valuable than other children. Now, of course, that V is general. This isn't talking about every single journalist, but just the media industry and America as a collective. Here's Liz again. A missing white girl syndrome is in our culture. It's almost like a fad, a fascination that has us all hypervigilant and hyper alert when we're in a public place. We've run into yet another issue with missing persons cases in the media. Are racial demographics in these reports even accurate? You see, we are working with Pulso to discuss missing Latino individuals specifically, but in many cases, Latinos are not a clearly defined group like black or white or Asian. I mentioned this technicality in part one as well. In short, Latino identity transcends race. There are Latinos who are also black or white or Asian, but there are also plenty who don't consider themselves any of these racial categories. And yet, so many statistics ignore these nuances. More often than not, you'll see many Latino groups under white in statistics. According to the FBI, there were nearly 55,000 adults who went missing last year where the person was believed to be in danger or had gone missing involuntarily, I think kidnapping. More than 15,000 were black, while more than 34,000 were white, which includes Latinos, as the FBI doesn't have a separate category for them. So are these numbers reflected in all the coverage or national attention? Hopefully you're already seeing how this could be a dangerous erasure of the Latino experience. Seriously, let's face it, guys, America's race politics have never been simple. I've lived in this country for 22 years and it is mind boggling to see how race impacts every aspect of American society. And this is no different. I think it's safe to say that plenty of Latinos may not have the white privileges associated with missing white girl syndrome. Now, sure, 
there are white Latinos, but the Latino community comes in a wide variety of complexions and backgrounds. And complexion, for example, unfortunately plays an undeniable role in media attention. In 2023, guys, we are still tackling issues of complexion and skin color. Isn't that sad? Well, this poses a problem for accurate reporting of media's biases. If many Latinos are lumped in as white, we may not even be getting the right information as to the rates of disappearance amongst the Latino community. And that's why distinction is important. So how are we supposed to address the disparities of this group if the data itself is skewed? Is there a trend in who from the Latino community goes missing? How do factors like immigration status play a role here? Again, this information is difficult to analyze without accurate data on the community overall. So, how does all of this information fit into the conversation so far about missing white girl syndrome? Well, in July of 2021, Pulso published an article on how the media has sidelined cases of missing Latina girls. Here's Liz again. Pulso sees as our responsibility to bring the history of this syndrome, to bring context and do a bit of a timeline, which is what we did around all of the times where a missing white girl was covered in the news and where a missing Latina little girl was not. And you know what? I noticed a few similarities among the Latina girls Pulso refers to in this particular article. They all have browner skin tones, darker hair, and names of Hispanic origin, as opposed to the name Mary Smith, for example. One case even mentions how America's immigration policies may affect kidnapping investigations. It's possible that sometimes people are worried about giving information to police because of their immigration status. Imagine a parent unable to give full information to police because they are scared that they may be deported. They associate law enforcement with what? Deportation. And if they are scared to come forward, we are not getting information that might be crucial for a family member of a missing child. Again, this makes the experience of Latina girls very different from their white counterparts. Now, Pulso also uses a side-by-side -side timeline to show how media coverage differs for different people. And I'll give you an example. Take the case of Sofia Juarez, which is the case obviously we covered last week. As most of you may already know, Sofia went missing in February 2003. A month later, in March, police rescued another kidnapping victim named Elizabeth Smart, who is white. As you can imagine, Smart's rescue received a lot of media attention, which in theory is a good thing. Well, this is every parent's nightmare. 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart, missing for nine months. It is a miracle. Elizabeth Smart has been found alive. Testifying for nearly six hours, Elizabeth Smart told jurors Tuesday she was so terrified of her abductor that on the day police found her, she today Elizabeth Smart marched into court, ready to finally confront the man accused of holding her captive. But as Bolsa suggests, it also seems to have redirected attention away from Sophia. 
Now, admittedly, it's pretty difficult to prove that Smart's case directed media attention away from Sophia. I'm sure there are some skeptics out there who will say that we have no evidence and that we are assuming too many things, etc., etc. But guys, we know the media pays attention to some things more than others. Need a recent example? Well, I have one. The Titanic submarine. Yes, most of you immediately know what I'm talking about. In June of this year, a submarine that was bound for the Titanic shipwreck imploded. How many TikTok accounts kept up with the submarine's fate by the hour? And I mean by the hour. How many people were invested in the welfare of those five passengers? How many media outlets released as much information as they could, as fast as they could? Yeah, a lot. But by comparison, how many people knew about the boat that shipwrecked off the coast of Greece, killing hundreds of migrants? Which story did you see more of on the internet? And which story had more brown-skinned and or lower-income people. Hopefully, this recent example makes the reality of media bias clearer. Yes, none of the Titanic submarine victims were women, and not all of them were white, but at its core, missing white girl syndrome simply reminds us that the media cares about some people more than others. Three of the five submarine victims were white, and all of them were incredibly rich. So, with all that in mind, let's pivot back to our discussion on missing persons. All this information has made me wary of journalism's role in these cases. What is the media's goal when it reports on missing persons' stories or crime and tragedy overall? To raise awareness, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind. Media should be able to raise awareness. To keep an eye out for suspected criminals, to be wary in certain areas, to keep you up to date on the state of our world, stuff like that. Sure, you could also add that they are just trying to make money and maybe you've heard the term, if it bleeds, it leads. Yikes. But I still think it's fair to say that the media coverage does raise awareness. Take a listen to this reporter in a CNN newscast from about two years ago as she discusses media's role in investigations. When there's all this media attention, that puts pressure on law enforcement. That diverts, directs resources to these searches. It increases reward money. So these women are much more likely to be found because of the media attention. Simply put, more media coverage means more public attention, which means more pressure on law enforcement to look into these cases. Again, I want to go back to Sofia Juarez's case because that's a perfect example of this. Remember that Sofia disappeared back in 2003, 20 years ago. But as we discussed in the last episode, a TikTok of a young woman went viral in 2021 because many people thought the young woman might be Sofia. And what happened as a result of all this media buzz? Well, investigators looked into this young woman and released new information on Sophia's case, which, by the way, I think they should have done earlier, much earlier. Unfortunately, it turns out that the woman 
was not Sofia Juarez, according to a DNA test. But at the end of the day, media coverage still led to the release of more information. This is the information we may not have ever known without the help of media coverage. And who knows, maybe one day that information will connect the dots to what actually happened. So, does bias in media coverage of missing persons matter? Of course it does, guys. Lives are quite literally on the line here. Now the question becomes, what do we do about missing white girl syndrome? Well, the way I see it, there are two major sides to the solution. The journalists and the general public. So let's start with journalists. Why do they amplify white people's disappearance more than others? Well, guys, a lot can be said here about the same old racist undertones in most aspects of America that we've discussed time and again on Immigrantly. Plus, newsrooms across the country remain disproportionately white. How many non-white journalists are in spaces where they can challenge the people making decisions? Diversity has improved, I get that, but it's far from ideal. That's why groups like Pulso are so important. They have given more non-white journalists the power to make decisions. The responsibility should not just fall on journalists of color, but it can certainly start with us, especially in cases like us where we are a Latino media outlet serving Latinos. It is absolutely our responsibility to combat the narrative around only white little girls' stories being worthy of news coverage with stories about our own community. Now, there are other parts of this too, like the relationship between media and the police. Research has shown that a big component of missing white girl syndrome is the fact that news media is heavily reliant on police in their coverage of missing persons cases. Crime reporters in general tend to use police accounts as their primary sources. Well, that's no surprise since police are first responders and that does make sense to me. But police have biases too and we could do a whole podcast episode on that. Especially when it comes to missing persons cases or any other crime honestly. Now ask yourself this, who do the police take seriously? Who do they put resources and urgency into? What type of people do they most commonly profile as criminals? And what type of people do they commonly profile as victims? Again, think about these questions. Sit with them. Ruminate. And by the way, I have briefly discussed this issue before on the other podcast I co-host called Invisible Hate. But in short, I've seen a lot of cases where the police's response is so in adequate that it literally makes my jaw drop. So sure, maybe reporters aren't getting the info they need from the police. Maybe that's part of why they don't share certain missing persons cases because they don't have the information and they don't know what happened. Now, a lot of you must be thinking, well, this is a bit too simple of an explanation. 
I feel like there are many times where journalists do actively decide which stories they think will get the most buzz, but this reliance on inadequate police reports can certainly be true to some degree. But that's where I see one possible solution. Listen closely. As Liz at Pulso suggests, maybe it's time journalists broaden their scope of sources. So for any crime beat reporter, the best way that they can change this issue is speaking to those affected and believing them and speaking to people from the community and speaking to organizations in the community that are aware of um, the trend of that crime or that issue that's happening. Local leaders that are not always government or law enforcement or the police are valid sources, are credible sources, and it is our job as communicators and folks specifically covering crime to believe those stories and think of those folks as first sources in any reporting. And then we have the general public's role in missing white girl syndrome. Which documentaries, newscasts and stories are audiences searching for and listening to? And how does race play a role in that? Which again is linked to racial biases and perceptions that already exist. But the general public can also be part of the solution, right? The comment section of one TikTok video revived the search for Sofia Juarez. That's pretty amazing. For me, it demonstrates the strength that an average person can have in media. In many ways, you and I are always choosing what we pay attention to. And your attention has real-life influence. Social media is a tool that can be used for good, and we just need to make the issues we care about viral. So it is our job as people of color, as Latinos in particular, to spread the news about a story about our community, make sure that when we're spreading the news, it's from a credible source. That so, especially when it comes to our communities, which are often underrepresented, make the issues viral. Talk about them. Research them. Share them on your media pages. And better yet, share them with media organizations who can spread the news. I mean, hey, I am always telling my listeners to message me with all of your thoughts and comments. And visibility in media is one of the biggest reasons why. Now, missing white girl syndrome is unfortunately nothing new. Media gravitates towards some people and not others. That's quite clear. And as we've seen over the course of two episodes, this has consequences. But in the case of Sofia Juarez, we've also seen hope. Now, more than ever, our media platforms have the potential to spread awareness so quickly. Will the solution happen overnight? Hell no. But the top suggestion on Google search, a media clip on our phones, and even memes have power. So why not change the power we do have in favor of better, more equitable reporting? Show them the facts. Bring the receipts with you and say, you know, in the past month we've covered five stories about this community and none about this community. We should really be bringing more awareness about the other folks in our community. So we definitely have to speak up. 
it starts with us journalists of color and we have to demand more from our newsrooms from our leaders until we are in leadership and can change those trends within the media industry guys i hope you enjoyed this episode but more than that i hope you listened to it carefully paid attention and you can make some conscious changes in how you consume media how aware and intentional you are about what you consume and how that consumption can impact individuals and communities this episode was produced by me written by Michaela Strother and Renee Harris editorial review was done by Shay Yu Our editor for this episode is Paroma Chakravarti. Music is by Simon Hutchinson and we also want to thank Pulso for their input and Liz for her feedback. Until next time, take care. Thanks everybody for listening to this special edition of Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, please check out the links in the show notes about the case. Please also email us your thoughts about this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Until next time, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sandhya Khan. Take care. <laughs>